Welcome to the Prenda Podcast. I'm Kelly Smith, and I'm looking for the best new ideas in education. I'll be talking to all sorts of people about new types of schools, reinventing education, and helping kids love learning. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Prenda Podcast. This is Kelly Smith, and I'm sitting here talking over Zoom with Blair Mishlow. Blair's uh, from Minnesota. Is that right? Originally, Blair? I grew up in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. But, uh, I heard yeah, Minnesota but. and I thought, uh, but taught in Minnesota, Washington, D.C., and now lives in the Phoenix area working with charters, a charter school here in Phoenix. He's one of these, you know, really passionate, innovative, but very much like on the ground. I mean, Blair's basically like the opposite of one of these think tank people that like sits around and like figures out all the world's problems. He's like living the world's problems in education and figuring them out at the same time. So it's really fascinating to have the conversations that I've had in the past with him. And I'm excited for you to be on the podcast. So thanks for joining today, Blair. Yeah, happy to talk. Appreciate it. So why don't we start with you and your story and then I'll, I'll tee up kind of today's topic and we can get into that as well. Yeah, so um, my uh, educa- education uh, elevator pitch, if you would, um, would be as follows. I, I did teach for America in the Twin Cities, um, so in Minneapolis. Um, worked at a K-8 charter school, teaching middle school literature for two years. Uh, moved to Washington, D.C., taught first through fourth grade technology, uh, and work as, worked as the technology specialist there. So I um, did a lot around blended learning and personalized learning support for our teachers, and then was recruited to come to Western School of Science and Technology in Phoenix um, to take on a role outside of the classroom as the director of personalized learning. Awesome. That's a big move from DC. Pretty different, yeah. <laughs> different culture here. Yeah. I mean, the fact that I can wear shorts in January and February has been delightful. Um, but there have been a lot of unexpected things that I just, I didn't realize how, um, how different the education landscape was. I mean, obviously, you know, to an extent I, like, I, I knew that it would be different, but, um, it's been, it's been a really interesting shift coming from DC and, and from Minnesota. Yeah. That's three, actually three different kind of settings. So I'd, I'd like to get into that. Uh, one of the, the things that I've been running into a lot as I've talked to people and learned kind of, you know, where educational innovation is going and we'll talk about uh, the role of technology. Obviously you're, you're in it, you're living technology um, and blending uh, but there's there's very much this this human side, and I've heard it described as a, an art form almost of being able to just you know take a person. This is a human being, right, with their own will and desires and and all kinds of baggage that comes from you know home and and personal life that you you as an educator maybe don't even get a glimpse of what's really going on. Taking all of that and then still sort of being able to play a motivating, inspiring coaching role to help them want to learn. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about today is, is high expectations. One of the things that uh, some of these charter schools that have been really successful and Kip's one of them. So we'll talk about your experience there is, you know, is not to say let's set a low bar and then kind of push everybody over it, but instead, and this is kind of paradoxical. If you think about, we're going to set a high, high bar. We're going to say, Hey, this is your education. We take it seriously. We want you to take it seriously. And as part of that, as the way that culture unfolds, you know, you have people coming from all kinds of backgrounds that are able to step in, take ownership of their, their learning and their education and, and achieve, you know, astonishing results. So 
So for today's topic, I'd like to kind of explore that, but let's do it kind of in the context of, of you and your story too. And maybe the first place to, to go as we kind of get there is what brought you as a, you know, clearly a bright young person. How did you get to Teach for America? Did you always know education? You know, what, what led you that direction? Yeah, so I just want to name first and foremost, like the, the term high expectations, I feel like in a lot of arenas has become um, a very like heated term because there's just a lot to unpack there. So I'm excited to talk about that. Um, but in terms of my, my education story, I think it comes back to like being a five-year-old kid. Um, my mom um, was a college dropout. And when I was born, she went back to college. And I remember like some of my first memories of my mom are doing ho- us both doing homework, her doing her um, college homework and me doing my second grade, like what stages of the water site, like the, the way water like goes through cycles or whatever. I'm doing that at the kitchen table with my mom. That's amazing. That's such a good, like a vivid picture of you as like a little second grader sitting there with your mom doing college. Yeah. That's awesome. So you've yeah, always so, liked education, basically. You're like, yeah, this is it. Well, so it, it, it's interesting. So for a long time, I was like, I want to be a teacher. And my mom became a teacher. She went to school for that. And when I was seven, started teaching high school. Um, and she was a very like vocal um, detractor of that. She was very much like, don't become a teacher. Don't be a teacher. <laughs> Just don't do it. Just say no. So for a long time, I um, like pursued other avenues. I, I actually went to college for computer science and journalism. Okay. And through my, I went to school um, in the South Loop in Chicago. And through my experience of um, like going to school there and being in a really diverse student population, I saw like firsthand through like some of the closest friends I made, what um, educational inequity looks like in terms of their their public schooling experience. Um, and that's really like what kind of like brought education back into my life was seeing uh, the fact that both of us had gone to a public school, had done what we were told. We, you right. know, we were, <clears throat> my, my friends, like friends that I made and that I'm so close to today, that they had done what they were told. And, you know, we both have been like told this story of, you know, you work hard, you do your homework, you show up to school, you do what you're told and you will like go to college and be successful. And I saw um, like firsthand just how poorly prepared they were um, in their own words. Like they were, they were not set up for, they felt um, like the system had failed them in that. In the that system case. had failed them. Like, yeah. Yeah. And they, um, you know, through like sheer determination, a lot of them were able to graduate, but also a lot of students just did not have the prerequisite skills. They had like the mindset, they had the passion, but the prerequisite skills that I took for granted, yeah. um, that you just have to have to be successful in a college classroom, um, just weren't there. And a lot of those students were products of just underserved schools that, you know, because of the zip code they grew up in because of the color of their skin, um, they were not well set up for college and that pissed me off. And, you know, being 21 years old and very, um, hopeful and optimistic, I, I wanted to have some, some stake in the game and, and to make some difference. And that's, you know, where teach for America came in. So you're this CS slash journalism major, 
at a good university in Chicago. You're fired up by fairness, basically access to opportunity, it sounds like, in terms of equity. It's like you, these friends of yours hadn't had these experiences or hadn't had the preparation that you had received on your track. And, and you say, you know what, I'm going to change course and, and go that route. Yeah, I think I just, I, to be frank, <laughs> I, grew up, I grew up in a, a very um, homogeneous population. Um, I had some crappy teachers, but I also had a safety net that would make sure that no matter what I would like get the tutoring I needed or the support I needed to be successful. And yeah. I think the, my college experience really like lifted up this, pulled back the curtain to show what inequity looked like. I had a, a very conceptual understanding of it. Um, just growing up in the family that I did, my family was very, um, like very proactive in talking about diversity and yeah. what, what privilege was and those things. But I had a very conceptual understanding like, Oh, there's this, unfortunate thing that happens but i think my college experience really put a it's like it's like telling my kids that um there's people starving in other countries you know it's like yeah they get that conceptually but like Mm -hmm. until they actually go and experience like okay this is life that's very very different than and and hopefully they'll get those experiences but you know that's um that I, i totally get what you're saying so it's this visceral reaction you're there in it and that's enough to really motivate a change of course and and you dove in. So Teach for America, you've been listening to this podcast. You've run into this. We've talked to several people that are TFA alumni. Talk about that and, and kind of quickly just what the program is, but what it looked like for you and, and how that allowed you to kind of change gears. Yeah. So TFA recruits, like the two sentence summary is T- Teach for America recruits recent college grads and career professionals to work in some of the most underserved um, schools in the country serving students from low-income communities, both in um, urban and rural uh, communities. Um, So it's a two-year commitment. You teach for two years, and then about a third of folks who complete the program stay in the classroom long-term. About a third um, stay directly in education, and another third um, are working in other fields, but still have this this really um, pivotal experience that I like would I would say really like shapes how they shapes their worldview and how they support um, and work with others and, and hopefully will help them keep equity um, in their frame of mind, even if they're working in another industry. Interesting. Yeah. So um, my experience was, I mean, ridiculously hard. It was, you know, like one of the first Facebook photos of me, my first year teaching is a picture of me, sitting on my couch, dressed in my teacher clothes, still wearing my backpack, just dead asleep. Like I'm, my mouth is open, (laughs) passed out. Uh, And one of my roommates had taken it. And I feel like that is really like, that was your life at the time. A pivotal like snapshot. So you're working super hard. I mean, you're applying all this energy. You think about how hard somebody works that goes into banking or consulting. I mean, these are the, the types of people with the, the backgrounds and degrees, like you could have gone off and made a bunch of money in the business world, you're applying that same energy and passion and, and hours of just sheer dedication, probably more to this cause of like, you've got these kids now in the Twin Cities that you're, you know, pr- these are kids that don't have the options and the access. And so you're doing it. You're saying, I'm going to take that problem that I saw as a college student and I'm going to address it, you know, for these 30 kids or whatever in my class. 
I'm going to try to address it. And I think that's the other <laughs> component is that I spent a lot of my first year and a half teaching, spinning my wheels and, really? and trying, you know, trying to hold high expectations. And I think that's why, like, I bristle a little bit at that term because, yeah. you know, if, if you interviewed me my first year teaching, I'd be like, high expectations for kids. But what that really <laughs> meant was that I was kind of like this author- authoritarian jerk. Like, I, 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 I was just like so you know my hair like I I was teaching like my hair was on fire like I was like very like motivated but I also think that blinded me to the needs of my kids Interesting, Um, and you know also like blinded me to the need for culturally relevant teaching and the need to think about power dynamics when you're a white male who's teaching you know 80 African-American students. Um, there were a lot of things that I did not thoroughly break down in the name of high expect to like, to focus on high expectations. And I think that, um, yeah, like lowered the achievement of my kids, frankly. So you, you went, go in this classroom. You're like, okay, guys, like, I believe in you. We can do this. Not thinking about these things you're talking about, right? The, the underlying unspoken dynamics, the past history, like any sort of experience, like the culturally relevant, like you're saying experiences. And you say, you show up and say, we can do this. Like, I'm not going to accept excuses. Like we're going to make this, make this happen. And you feel like it hurt. Is that what you're saying? Well, so I wouldn't say it was necessarily, we can do this to begin with. It was more so you should do what I'm telling you to do. Interesting. So you can be successful. Okay. Um, and, and I don't know if I said it in words, but it definitely, it definitely was not like a, like, I'm investing your family in this. I'm investing you in this. It was yeah. more so like, I, as the teacher know best and I, you need to, you need to become a better writer. So you need to do this task. Yeah. And I don't think holding a high expectation around the task itself is bad. I think that's great. I do think, um, skipping all of the other investment components in the name of, getting kids to work on this task is really where I failed miserably as a teacher. My, my first year and a half teaching. Interesting. So you only did two years in St. Paul, Minneapolis, right? Is that what you're saying? Yep. So I taught for two years there and then I taught for three more years in DC. So your first year and a half of the two, you feel like was a failure? Um, it depends on the metric you're using. Right? Like, <laughs> this is sounding I, depressing. I'm sure you yeah. were like, you're clearly a good person. Like I have a hard time picturing you as this like crazy authoritarian. That's just like shoving homework down everybody's throats, you know? Well, you have to remember, like, you know, I was working in some of the most underserved schools in, in the, in the country. So, um, our, like my kiddos came to me with, with trauma. I mean, a lot of the kiddos that I taught were former Somali refugees. Like they had, lived in refugee camps they had like seen war literally happen around their communities like there were a lot of things that like i think grown adults would really struggle to handle yeah um and i was in the name of high in the name of high expectations like kind of pushing all that aside Ah, and i think you know and and by a lot of metrics like i was a successful teacher i mean after my second year teaching the state of Minnesota cut me a check for a thousand dollars in the form of a bonus because of like a student achievement metrics that I reached. And so like, and, and you could have said, Hey, pat myself on the back. State's happy. (laughs) Everything's working. What were like, what were some of the reasons why 
like the things that you noticed that led you to form this view? Because it sounds like the external metrics were Blair's doing a good job, Mr. Mishla's like a good teacher, whatever. Like, but you're sitting here saying, I felt like a failure up until the last semester, basically, of the time that you spent teaching. So it's like, what what was making you feel that way? And and I think the reason I'm asking this is because I think it can uh, it can help as we sort of formulate, you know, an opinion, our own opinion of what high expectations should mean, right? I know there's all the connotations and anytime you use a catchphrase, it's like people kind of automatically think they know what it means. But what's cool about this and you and I can figure this out and my audience um, for the most part is not professional educators. So there's a lot of people on this episode that haven't engaged in any sort of, dis- that are listening that have never talked about high expectations. So for us, it's, we have a, consider it a, a blank slate. Let's say, all right, what is what should it mean, right, to have high expectations? And I think one of the things you're pointing out is it's contextual given the people that you're working with. I mean, is that fair to say? It's contextual. And I think the, the, the thing that's really, really... So, so to give some context, charter networks like KIPP and, um, I mean, a, a, lot of, a lot of high-performing charter ne- networks have gotten a lot of flack for the, the, like the high expectations, no excuses, like catchphrase, because a lot of students who may have faced the most trauma and the most adverse childhood experiences, which like is, is a clinical term that, that describes, you know, experiences that children have gone through that, that can have a negative effect on their, on their, their, their brain. Right. Like something like seeing, a murder or, or, um, experiencing violence or homelessness, things that are, are very negative experiences have a, a chemical effect on students' brains. And right. sometimes the, the idea of holding high expectations, um, with no excuses can mean you need to sit in this desk in a certain way while the teacher's talking. And if you don't, you're going to get ultimately suspended and if you get suspended enough times, you're going to ultimately be either expelled or your family's going to feel pushed out of this school. Mm. Uh, and that's where I think the term high expectations um, has some, in some, some minds, a, a negative connotation because, right. you know, it can sometimes mean uh, some, some families and students feel pushed out of a school. Right. Um, so I think that context component is important. And I think the, the scaffolding and supports that are provided for students to hold high expectations are just as important. And, and I think right. oftentimes are, are discounted or not, like just not provided in certain schools. So let's talk about that. And I, it sounds like you figured that out. So this last semester teaching in, in Minneapolis, and then presumably you brought it with you when you went to KIPP in DC was scaffolding and support, right? What do you mean by that? Like what kinds of things does an educator do to create that? Or, or maybe it's not just one person. It's probably a whole system and framework and community, but can you give an idea of like what that looks like to do that? Right. Mm -hmm. So my school in DC um, does an amazing job at that. They have, um, I mean, it's also pertinent to note that DC spends the most per student in the country Right. So there's a lot more money to be had. I mean, they spend more than double what Arizona spends. Wow. Um, yeah, I think it's like $22,000 a kid. Um, I might have that totally wrong, so don't. <laughs> we can look it up. NCS. No, no <laughs> look up the National Center for Education Statistics, and you can check Blair's facts in real time. 
Yep. But <laughs> it's stuff. definitely a lot of money. No, I've heard that too. Okay. So DC spends twice as much as Arizona on per pupil, you know, 22,000 is the, is the guess, but we can look that up, but that's a lot of money per pupil. So what does that allow you to do in DC in terms of scaffolding? I like that word scaffolding. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's school specific. My school, I feel like did a good job allocating money. So first of all, they, they pay teachers ridiculously well. So, um, you're pulling in teachers and keeping teachers who maybe want to start a family or buy a house. Like that's a thing that can happen as a single teacher in DC, which is really exciting. Um, but in addition to that, uh, there's a lot of wraparound services, meaning like you have your school day, you have your classroom, but you also have all these services that wrap around. So our um, school provided trauma counseling for students who had gone through adverse childhood experiences. We had um, community partners for students who might be in foster care. So there was um, a caring adult who was checking in with students regularly. Um, We had um, this thing called Joyful Food Market. So once a month, um, healthy, fresh food was provided to families free of charge, no questions asked. Like you literally come and get healthy things like they had kale, they had collard greens, sweet potatoes, like, and, and, and it also included recipes for how to utilize these, these foods. Cause Lord knows, I, <coughs> like, I don't know how to utilize kale in my day to day. I can't get it down to be honest. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, and those are just a few examples. There were a lot of other, um, community partners and, and just experiences. Like we hopped in a boat and went in, went to the Chesapeake Bay to learn about fish and how DC cleans water and, and all of that. So Interesting. there were a lot of services and then a lot of also, in addition, there were a lot of trainings for teachers about um, just ways to interact with students who had gone through trauma. Yeah. Uh, we, we got a grant to do home visits to see where kiddos lived and to meet with families. Um, we utilized multiple different communication structures to communicate with families, both in terms of printed materials that were sent home weekly so teachers could easily send home a commentary about how the kiddo was doing printed out each week we had um text textual communication email communication um we had a, a robocalling feature so it was really easy to communicate with families in the way that made the most sense for them yeah um so all of those services combined really helped us meet students where they're at um and provide them with additional services um, if, if they were going through something or needed more support. Yeah. And that sounds on the one hand, nice as a teacher, cause you've got these tools, but also with tools means more time to learn the tools and more time to spend using them, you know, writing the messages that are going to be broadcast through all of these going out and doing the home visits. I mean, it, it sounds like they can pay if they pay more uh, like a basic economics would say they're able to attract better people that, that can step into that. But did you feel like it's, it's hard to to be a professional educator in that context. I mean, it sounds like that might actually be more work than what your kind of run of the mill, um, you know, teacher is is required to do. So definitely more work than like the teachers we see from like boys meet world, boy meets world. Right. Like, (laughs) like it's it's a lot more work than, than teaching middle-class white kids for sure. Um, and I think any school that serves students from an underserved population, it, if you're doing your job anywhere near correctly, you're going to have a much higher workload. I think, you know, I worked at a school in Minnesota that, that 
serves 100% free and reduced price lunch students um, from underserved communities. And I did the same in DC. And while in DC, maybe there were more asks of me, um, I would take that in a heartbeat compared to my school in Minnesota, which had less asks, but I felt like I was spinning my wheels a lot of the time because, you know, I would have a student punching holes in my wall and have no idea what to do and no oh, idea God. how to support them. Yeah. And the, the narrative of the administration is hold high expectations. Right. But I don't know how to hold high expectations when a kid is crying uncontrollably, punching holes in my wall. Like I, 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 I know better now what that looks like, but I didn't know what that, that, yeah. that would be. You're like, the expectation here is don't punch holes in the wall, but like, obviously like that's been communicated already. Wow. So both of these, this is an interesting thought exercise because you've got two schools, both sort of espousing this idea of high expectations, but one of them doing it in some ways, I mean, I hate to black and white, make this too black and white, but like there's a right way and a wrong way to do high expectations. And it sounds like you've definitely seen the right way, which comes with a lot of help for the teachers, like both on the development and, and then, you know, building you up as a person and an educator, but also on the, um, the side of just support and infrastructure around it. Is that, is that safe to say? Yeah. And I, I think really like the money, the money aspect of DC having more money per pupil is like, I, I don't want to discount that. And I think that the principal at my school in DC knew more about she she was better trained and i and was regularly in classrooms and regularly talking to families and like very much had a pulse on like how are we as a environment yeah how how can i affect this i think the the key issue is that the the school leader in minnesota was far 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 more removed she was in my classroom maybe twice throughout the entire year and i talked to her maybe 10 times my yeah. school leader in DC, I talked to every single day. I checked in with her weekly. She was in my classroom or another administrator was in my classroom once every three weeks. And that was, I was observed among the least. Um, yeah. So it, it's not, it's not, I don't want to paint a picture where like DC had all this money. Like th- they do, but that's not the. There's things that could have been done in Arizona too. Well, let's get into that because I think, you know, you haven't really said the word culture. I mean, I guess we've alluded to it, but culture is more than obviously more than just like a core value that you put on a list, right? Because in both cases, those words like high expectations could have shown up, but you have one case where, and one of the things we say in, in kind of the startup community is that the culture really is the leader, right? Like it, it evolves around that, that person and what they're doing. So if you have a school leader, that's really like hands-on, like in it and that there's like no question of, you know, does this person support me both from a teacher perspective, but also the students, right? They see this leader and they, they can rally around that. Let's talk a little bit about how to create that culture. You've, you've done it, I'm sure in your classrooms. Um, you know, what, like, what are, the, the best educators doing to sort of build that culture. Cause I think that can make up for a lot, right? Even when you face some of these extremely challenging situations, trauma in the past, things that are clinically, you know, just difficult. 
uh, impeding learning? So, I mean, my school in Phoenix, I feel like has culture on point. And I think that's a really good example because we have a lot less money than my school in DC, right? uh, just in terms of money coming in from the state. And uh, my my current school leader has a phrase that I really like, and I'm I'm sure he, he didn't coin it, but he uses it, which is making sure that we're all on the same bus, facing the same direction, going the same way. Um, and I think in, in, in a large part, that is kind of how I would define culture because um, if you have really smart people, but they're on the wrong bus, or they're on the right bus, but facing the wrong way, or right. the bus isn't going in the right direction, you're going to have people spinning their wheels. And, and it feels frustrating and it feels like you are in like an alien universe or you're doing something wildly wrong, but it might just be that you're not, you didn't find a school that's the right cultural fit. Um, so I, I, yeah, culture. I, yeah. I, I use the word culture a lot. So it's funny that I um, like that didn't kind of come up. <laughs> it probably, I'll listen back and you probably did say it, but it hadn't stood out to me anyway. No, it's, um, it's huge. And, yeah. And the, um, I've worked for Teach for America for the past five summers on their institute team, which is the, the team that trains new teachers. Yeah. Um, and it's a five-week training program. So it is, it is like teacher boot camp, and culture is paramount because you're living in, the, in dorms together. Yeah. In the, in the summer heat, like I've done it in Tulsa, so it's nice and hot. Um, nice. You're not getting a lot of sleep. You're living in the same area that these new teachers are at. You're eating cafeteria food that is like meant for a college student. <laughs> um, so if you mess up culture, like things hit the fan really quickly. Yeah. And I think it's been a really amazing professional development experience for me because I get, a, you know, um, what do you call that? Like a fast cycle of like yeah. seeing, I, I've gotten five summers of this five week intensive that shows really quickly um, in this like sped up universe, how quickly things hit the fan when you, when there's a cultural breach. Interesting. Um, and I feel like it's, it's been really, if I ever am in, if I'm ever a school leader, it's been, that has been hands down the most helpful experience because in the, in the real world outside of Institute, there's a little bit more lag time between a uh, cultural breach and, and things going awry, but it's been really health help helpful for me to, see that kind of sped up yeah, so that way because it's pressurized it's like a pressurized yes. container yes so exactly this is, it's interesting that educators get this i think you guys were ahead of kind of the the entrepreneurship crowd um like for example i i follow all the, the blogs and you know different video series and like probably even 10 years ago if somebody had said you know well culture you know you've got to like get your core values and have your culture and in the entrepreneurial ecosystem or the tech world, people would roll their eyes at that and kind of be like, yeah, 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 that's fluffy. Like this isn't really, um, but as recently, you know, just the last couple of years, there's been these talks. Like I I saw one where the um, founders of Airbnb who could have talked about a number of brilliant things they did to build this amazing company. The thing they wanted to talk about was like building the right culture. And they famously spent like eight months choosing their third employee, right? Like, mm-hmm. like they were desperate for help and they spent all this time because they interviewed person after person who had all the talent and skill. But I think like your analogy, right? might've been pointed in a different direction. Um, and I, by the way, I'm picturing a Flintstones bus where like everybody's Peter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you can, then you can experience the struggle of like, I'm running, running, running and it's tiring mm-hmm. me out. Um, 
I love that, that analogy. So one group that does seem to get it and has got it forever, I don't know if you've seen this, is like the sports world. You know, these, like, these people who are just talented, like that can bring in raw ability, but then coach them. They, like a good coach. And I'm, I'm thinking of like college basketball or something where you have these, these people that have just famously been able to bring out the very best in an otherwise average group of people um the duke coach you know uh, mike i can't even coach k i've never really even known how to say his name but you know i don't know if you follow sports at all but is that something that um i, I wonder if it's something that educators are starting to look to or, or others should be looking to to figure out like how can you do that and how can you do it in a way that's correct right because i think a good coach would similar to what you've you've already explained through your story right you wouldn't just say do this, like this outcome. And I don't care about any of the rest. It's like, I know that you're a person, what's going on in your head, what's going on in your life that's preventing you from being able to get to where you need to get. I don't know. Maybe that's a poor analogy. So I don't follow sports at all, but <laughs> I, um, I've read a lot of books about cultures and teams and, and they, they talk about them a lot. I mean, one of my favorite analogies, and I, I have no idea what team it is or what coach, um, but it's, I know it's a basketball team. Um, the coach spent the like a huge chunk of time literally being like, all right, let's put our socks on the right way. That's we're literally going to train ourselves on how to put our socks on the right way and then lace our shoes the right way and then build on like infinitely small skill by infinitely small skill. And that's actually something I do a lot as a, as a, I, as a teacher coach. So in my role, I coach three teachers and, um, I have a, one of my teachers is a, a former, former baseball player and he, <laughs> I, I will do skills with him and he calls them, he's like, Hey, can we, can we do some drills? And I'm always, it always makes me chuckle. Cause I like <laughs> old sports background, but he like to your, to your comparison, he very much, uh, like likes that it's, it's, it breaks down a specific act of teaching into a drillable skill. Interesting. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, a coach or a leader of a school knows what they're looking for. Um, and I think, you know, more broadly than those micro, like those tiny actionable teaching moves, um, does know like at a high level, what, what they're looking for on a team. Um, yeah, well, a vision for sure of like, where are we trying to get? But mm -hmm. I think it's even more than that. It's like, how are we going to be as a group of people getting there together? Cause these are not cogs in a machine as maybe once was thought right in the old management books, you would see comparisons like that, but that's been blown out of the water. Like humans don't operate that way. Mm -hmm. And so this conversation, I actually spoke on a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago about a book called Radical Candor that I um, am I'm still reading. I haven't finished it yet. I have like 50 pages left, but <laughs> it's a really um, interesting model because it talks about how to lead teams and like the tagline is how to be a kick-ass boss. Yeah. And it's, it's a quadrant and, um, the, 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 the two skills that you need to do really well when managing a team are, um, care personally and challenge directly. Um, and I think hmm. so often, you know, managers are good at one of those, um, right. have to do both. And I think coming back to that, that theme of high expectations as a teacher, a, a really helpful training I went through is called no nonsense nurturer training. Hmm. It focuses on um, those two skills, but translated into the classroom. So, um, you need to be able to hold high expectations. You also need to be able to, to nurture students 
um, you need to be nurturing. And um, when you fall too far on one side, you end up being a um, negative controller, which was me to a T um, my first year and a half yeah. teacher. Cause I just was like, you got to do what I say. Um, but on the other, on the other side, you can um, become an un- unintended enabler. So mm. you're making excuses for kids and not holding a high bar. I and feel I, like I do that one. <laughs> yep. And and in the middle is a no nonsense nurturer. You are, you're no nonsense, but you also care deeply about your kids. And um, I think the adult version of that is radical candor. You, um, you care yeah. personally, but you're willing to challenge someone directly um, and do that to help them develop. Awesome. Well, this has been fascinating. I thought we would get into tech and blended learning and all these things. We, <laughs> we've had a great conversation around high expectations. Is there anything we missed, Blair, as we kind of sum this up? Make sure you tell people which podcast that is so they can check that out. Well, so there's loads we've missed, I'm sure. Like this is a like, <laughs> very long conversation. And I also want to name, like we're like two white dudes talking about this. So like, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. there's like a lot of perspective that um, like we didn't even scratch the surface on, but I do think like it was a cool conversation. It's fun. It was a, a um, fun surface scratch. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the, the name of the podcast is called Epiphany. Okay. Uh, and it's, I don't know if it's even been released yet, but it's, um, a woman I work with named Carla Rivera Cruz. She has a consulting company called CRC Consulting. So cool. she's going to be tickled that I remember the name of it and that I um, nice. could, could promote it. <laughs> well, check it out uh, if you guys are listening. Ed Piffany. I love yep. that. Isn't that cool? Cool. Well, any, anything we're missing? You want to? Well, lots we're missing, but anything you want to <laughs> say as we wrap up? No, I mean, I haven't thought about my first year teaching in, in a minute. So it's been, it's helpful to keep that in <laughs> mind. And like, you know, I apologize to all the students I taught my first year. Um, <laughs> um, I get the were, sense that you're beating yourself up. I bet if I asked them, they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, he was cool. Like, I don't know what the problem was. Except for maybe the guy punching holes in the wall. I don't know. <laughs> they'd say it was cool, but I don't, well, I, they might say that I was cool, but they also, I don't know. I also could have done a lot more for them for sure. I think we all, there's, there's always room for that. Well, Blair, thank you so much for the time and uh, appreciate, appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Prenda Podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this conversation or innovating in education. And if you want to follow my progress designing a new model for school, you can learn more at school.prenda.co.